Now, what we've seen with open banking, where that data got opened up first, is a huge Cambrian explosion of fintech companies. The opening up of that data is just the start of a revolution in the way you and your business work. They're looking at pulling 50 or 100 or 1,000 or more data sources and from that, building a rich picture of the businesses they're serving. Coming up, from an accidental consultant obsessed with data to a government-level disruptor helping to pave the way for the fintech boom. Hi, I'm Sean McGinty, and this is Digital Awakenings, stories about people and business. This podcast is called Digital Awakenings. I called it that because that's how it feels when it happened. Like the sun's come up, like you've rubbed the sleep from your eyes and you're ready for a new digital dawn. My suspicion before I started telling these stories was that people who have powerful digital awakenings are kind of seeking them out before they find them. I've been wrong about that up to now with all my guests in this series, but for this one. The person I'm talking to this week is an unashamed shaker-upper, leading the charge towards the digital awakenings of the near future. I ask all my guests to upload three photographs that chart their digital awakenings, but the first time I see them is when we're talking. Louise Beaumont is a disruptor, advisor and investor who works with regulators and businesses with a 100% focus on data. She's also executive chair of MessageHerd, the innovative audio company that tells stories and makes podcasts, but also helps businesses to communicate better. Louise's first picture is a question mark. It signifies curiosity and wonder. Yes, about data. Connected humans like you and me bellow out an enormous trail of information that we readily discard into the online world. This is so-called unstructured data. It's a mainly untapped resource, a deep chaotic pool of ones and noughts that could help us all manage our lives and our businesses better if we can find ways in the future to make some sense out of all the noise. But if you think about what you do when you structure a piece of data is you effectively neuter it. You, you take all of the vibrancy, all of the color, all of the drama out of it, and you make it simple and dumb enough for a computer to understand. And it's only a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the data in the world that has actually been structured. And most of that has been ignored to date. So it's common sense to start with the structured stuff because it's what computers can cope with. Now, there's a point there that says, well, what about machine learning? What about artificial intelligence? And how do we unleash machine learning, artificial intelligence, and whatever comes after that on the really interesting data, which is the stuff which hasn't been structured, the unstructured data, uh, those images, those videos, those um, scraps of audio uh, um, that constitute our world, uh, every conversation you ever have, for example. Um, that is where I think the mother load of value really is. And I'm really interested in the sector to see where investors follow. Do they keep doing the simple stuff or do they place any big bets 
on the kind of unstructured data that could really unlock serious value for consumers, for businesses, and I would argue for governments as well. That's a big, bold and some might say rather scary play through artificial intelligence and machine learning. All unstructured data could be brought together in a way that changes our relationship with governments and companies from one to many to one to one. Well, let's say I'm up for that. I'm okay to give my permission to companies I trust to have more of my data. So what's it going to do for me? Save you money, stop you wasting money and give you those kind of hyper-personalised, predictive and indeed preemptive services that pull on things like your pedometer data. So how many steps you do a day, your um, shop from a cardo, for example. So what is it you buy, the kind of food and beverages that you buy, how much you use the Calm uh, app for calming yourself down for meditation or yoga or something like that. If you use all of those data feeds and indeed the feeds from your bank source and you as a consumer, you, you choose to give people access to that data. You choose the services that would access that data and you, you give them permission to use that data and you can always revoke that permission. You can always take it away. You can access interesting services. Now, the one I described for you is actually an insurance service because they want to know how healthy are you? How committed are you? How do you use your gym, gym membership or do you just pay for it every month? Um, how do you eat? How do you move enough every day? Are you therefore fully deserving of a very low insurance cost because the risk you present is low, you manage your health well, and you should have access to that service. Now, you can choose not to have access to that service because you don't want to share that data. But that mm. shows you not just um, that that insurance company is taking a view of the risk that you present at a, the point in time that you take the premium out and never reviews you again, that says they are pulling that data all the time to, to understand the risk that you present. So, and then if you do become unwell, how committed are you to getting better? And they can therefore present you with a really personalized insurance service that is tailored for you, not just people of your general height and weight and age, but for you. That's an example of a service that can be powered, not just by open banking, but the kind of open data, if we choose, if we want to share that data. I like to think I'm pretty careful already as to who I share my data with, because companies have been using our data to make a pile of cash without a care in the world as to the consequences for society. But I'm already using a couple of apps that access my bank account. Why? Well, because in one case it saves me money and in the other, it's just more efficient and convenient. Louise brings up insurance there and it's an interesting example. Most of us buy into the idea of pooling downside risk across society. We're all worried about bad stuff happening, so we insure against it knowing only a small percentage of us will ever claim. Over the last 20 years or so, insurance companies have used more and more of our own data points that we as consumers can't really have an effect on, like our postcode, our age or our current health status. You could move house, but you're not going to make yourself any younger. And as far as your health goes, as you listen to this, 
you can't immediately change how healthy you are. But by doing the right things over time, you could be a much healthier human in future. So give insurance companies more data and they'll be able to assess your price and your risk much better, reducing losses for the insurer and premiums for the consumer. Now, what we've seen with open banking, where that data got opened up first, is a huge Cambrian explosion of fintech companies. So fintech means financial technology companies, i.e. companies that are working in the financial space, either in account information or in payments initiation uh, to bring innovation to, to us. To the world. So there's been this huge explosion of uh, new companies, innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors in the fintech space. As the data opens up, as we move into an era of open finance, as the data opens up with insurance companies, pension companies, mortgage companies, and more, those innovators will flood in because the thing that they can innovate upon is actually the data as it opens up. That's the key ingredient for innovators. They want access to the data. And when that data is opened up, when they can get access to it, that's when you start to see the flood of innovation, new services. And as more data sources are opened up, that means you're not making single point innovations. You're making innovations that can uh, pull multiple sources of data. And the more sources of data that you can pull, the more interesting, the more complex, and ultimately, if you get it right, the more valuable the service that you can provide. Our guest is Louise Beaumont disruptor, advisor and investor. We're talking about data and the effect the consensual opening up of that information can have on our economy in the UK. Small and medium enterprises or SMEs form around 99% of the businesses in the UK by number. They employ 60% of the UK workforce and generate around half of the UK's private sector turnover. That's nearly 17 million people with combined company revenues of £2.3 trillion. That makes SMEs really important to all of us. Many of them have been helped already by these new data-aware financial technology or fintech companies. In the area of growth funding, new peer-to-peer lenders use the data available to them to lend to companies who've been ignored in the past by the big banks. And as you may have gathered, this is a humongous amount of data. They're looking at pulling 50 or 100 or 1,000 or more data sources and from that building a rich picture of the businesses they're serving which means they can better understand them and they can preemptively offer lending which is appropriate to the risk profile of the company at the right moment or even preemptively before because they can see the forecast of that business for example so they can see when they're going to need the money they can understand the risk profile and they can price it appropriately for that business. Now that powers sustainable growth coming out of a pandemic and coming out of Brexit, an issue which has largely been masked by the pandemic. 
is the point at which we really need not just growth in the economy, we need sensible, sustainable, viable growth upon which we can build with confidence our economy. We don't get that innovation though unless UK financial regulators create the conditions for it. So what have they done so far? Well, there are a number of financial regulators in the UK, but the one that was the catalyst in financial services is the Competition and Markets Authority, which unsurprisingly is there to ensure we have a competitive and fair business environment. Now, this brings us back to the banks. Over the years, previous regulators have tried to open up the banking industry to new competition, but nothing much had worked. People and companies get a bank and they stay with them. And the big four or five banks offer those companies and consumers big dumb products without a thought for the end user and their individual needs. So it was in 2015 that the Competition and Markets Authority took stock and had a bit of a digital awakening themselves. They worked out that nothing that they'd done, either legislatively in um, more recent years with the Small Business Act or with regulation, had made a difference. So they worked out it wasn't something that you could tweak or amend or mildly, you know, prod. They worked out that the mother load for innovation is data. They also worked out that it's us, you, me and the businesses we run that create that data through the transactions that we make. And if they could give access to that data, innovation would transpire because entrepreneurs and investors that back them would understand that this was a really interesting space to create new services, to create new products and to create value. Do I sense in the last five years that things have slowed down in government that, that maybe, I mean, there's been some other distractions you know, I think we can give anybody that's been in government in the last five years, there's been a few distractions around. But obviously, you're clearly still involved in the conversation and trying to bash down those doors. But are you having to bash them down again? Or, or are you, you know, really making the progress you want to? Well, you you, you mentioned distractions. I think there have been three. The, the number of um, elections that we've had over the last five years, um, a number of new leaders that both the main parties have, have managed to elect over the last few years. Uh, we've also had Brexit and the consequences of Brexit in the financial services space particularly. We're basically in the honeymoon period at the moment and it has been, the full impact of it has absolutely been obscured by COVID because everybody has quite rightly focused on the pandemic and keeping as many people as possible alive and then through the vaccination programme, keeping as many people protected as possible. Can we, to go back to your question, um, can we focus uh, to, to make the UK a real hotspot globally for innovation? I believe we can, and I very definitely believe we should. And that takes focus. It takes focus from the Cabinet Office, from Number 10, and it takes focus absolutely from the Treasury. And it takes coordinated action from our regulators to make us the best place in the world I'm talking with Louise Beaumont, self-described disruptor, advisor and investor. But how do you become a professional disruptor? I grew up in, um, in the home counties in, in uh, Buckinghamshire and departed 
England uh, uh, for a couple of degrees. I did my first degree at St Andrews University. Um, and after I'd, I'd got that one, um, I, I went all the way over to Glasgow and uh, worked on a PhD. Interestingly enough, uh, that PhD was in corporate identity and semiotics. So semiotics is the study of meaning. You know, how is meaning created, conveyed, received and understood? And I actually um, worked with the BBC to on that PhD. They, they provided me very kindly the source material for my work. And uh, when I'd finished that, uh, my view was that I was either highly employable or could never ever be employed. You know, what do you do aged 24, um, 23, 24 with a couple of degrees? It's, you know, you've either, you've either condemned yourself to a life of academia or, sure. um, or you can move into commerce. So I decided um, that I wouldn't be credible in academia until I'd uh, done some work in the commercial world. And so I just started ringing around different organizations because I figured that you could describe what I'd done for the BBC as consultancy. So I thought maybe I'm a consultant. So I rang around a random selection of organizations and happened to call one particular organization now known as Capgemini the day after uh, one of the directors had been into the HR department and said, find me some bright young things. And evidently I had, without knowing it, impersonated a bright young thing and ended up working there <laughs> for a few years. So Louise was, it turns out, almost by accident, a consultant. She moved to Siemens, working in the area of business development, strategy and growth. She set up her own company, which she still runs today. And it's while she was running her own business that she realised there were certain sectors of the UK economy that weren't going to deliver growth without a real shift in the regulatory environment. So I slowly started to work it out. You know, if you want to change the game, that means changing laws or getting new laws made or changing regulations or making new regulations. And uh, it didn't occur to me that I couldn't do it. And luckily, there were enough people around in the industry at the time who were just starting to refer to ourselves as fintech that felt the same way. We ended up having those discussions with Number 10's policy unit, talking to the Cabinet Office, lobbying the Treasury, banging down the door at the Competition and Markets Authority. And new laws did follow. New regulations did follow uh, because they thought about it you know we just you know we just drove a wedge in to make them think you know to make them think about the opportunity and the potential that was available to us. Louise saw that this new fintech industry could only thrive if the regulations around data and finance were given a good old shake but it wasn't just about a narrow part of the finance world she also saw the data-driven revolution that could follow across the whole of our economy if regulators and legislators could find a way to safely over time pivot the uk economy into this new world of open data she'd become a disruptor subsequently she was part of the former chancellor of the exchequer george osborne's blackett review of fintech this laid out how an accountable fintech innovation sandbox could invigorate the consumer and business banking sectors but there's more to do and the current chancellor rishi sunak in april of 2021 laid out new proposals to have a second phase of the sandbox to help the financial sector become greener and find a path to carbon net zero
So to the other two pictures that represent Louise Beaumont's digital awakenings. One is a beautiful picture of a man on a train wearing headphones and the other is a bright, shiny chrome mic. The second and third pictures come as a pair. It's a microphone and headphones. So the headphones is to make sure you listen. The microphone is to make sure that you think before you speak. But it's particularly with regard to a business called Message Heard. And this is a business that I was um, the earliest investor in. I'm the exec chair of that business. And I work with that business every single day of every single week. Why? Because it's a really, really interesting business in the podcasting space. It was founded to create amazing shows and we create shows for commissioners like Spotify and Audible. We create shows for ourselves, so editorial shows we make ourselves. We just released one this week called Finding Natasha, and that covers the Soviet Union ballet, and it covers near-death experiences and loss and, and finding a woman called Natasha. I'm only halfway through, but it, it is a beautifully told story. It really is. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a wonderful story to tell. We've really enjoyed it. So that's just now released this week. And then we also make co-productions where we feel somebody's got a really great idea and that intellectual property is incredibly valuable going forward. So we make some co-productions as well. There's, there's a definite love of audio, the way you've talked about the way it's not just because you chair and have invested in, in a podcast making company. Where did that come from? Where was your sort of, you know, I can tell you mine, it was listening through the night. I didn't sleep, which as a child, I had what, I had a transistor radio and one earphone and I'd listened through to the world service through the night and that has never left me. I didn't read books. I learned my language through the world service. Was it something like that for you? Yes. Um, I had uh, a tape recorder, which my parents had given me and a small number of tapes and I would listen under the covers I didn't have headphones um I I just had to play it very 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 quietly under my duvet and I could listen to stories or I could listen to music or I could listen to what whatever I had the tapes for even today BBC Radio 4 as Alexa makes me say it is a core part of my life that's quite often of mm. the background uh, to what I'm to what I'm listening to but if I'm really listening if I'm really paying attention it is because I've sought out that podcast I'm really curious about it and I want to listen so for me radio is a lovely experience it's on in the background it's a comforting burble if I really want to listen, it's headphones in, it's that intimate experience. And that comes all the way back from when I was four, five, six, seven, um, little kid under the covers, just me and my tape recorder really listening. The old cliche is that radio offers better pictures, and that's true. But when you choose to listen to a podcast for whatever reason, that intimate headphones-in experience is deeper and more valuable than 100 hours of having the radio on in the background. 
A final word on the economy and the importance of creating better conditions for small and medium businesses to scale up and grow. As we've heard, one of the answers could well be hidden among all that unstructured data. In an uncertain economic world, giving small and medium businesses more options to fund growth and more digital ways to deliver new products and services could bring about a huge growth potential. That means better jobs, more of them, and a bigger and more vibrant economy. Never have we needed those businesses to be better funded and better informed in order to be able to safely and securely and sustainably to grow both for their, you know, for their own sake as an individual small business. Uh, it's incredibly important to know that you've got a sustainable future and you're well-run, well-managed, right access to finance at the right time. It's also incredibly valuable in aggregate um, for our uh, larger UK economy. Now, never have we needed that more as we work our way through Brexit and what it really means and as we come out of uh, this pandemic. I talk about this kind of stuff with small and medium businesses all the time. At the moment, companies who embrace this digital world have to at least begin to understand the socials they post on, the website they make and the story they tell about their services and products. And there's a knowledge barrier there for some. On the horizon are new ways for us to run our business, fund our growth and to find out what our customers really think of us. And the beauty of it is we won't need to understand how all that data works, just that it helps us to run a better business. Thanks to you for listening. Also, thanks to Louise Beaumont, disruptor, advisor, investor, and exec chair of MessageHerd for telling us her digital awakenings. When I'm not making this podcast, I enable small and medium-sized businesses to seize the digital opportunities around them. Go to bentleymcginty.co.uk to find out more. The music throughout this podcast is made by the remarkable band from Lancashire in the UK, Northling. Just Google Northling Band. Follow Digital Awakenings wherever you get your podcasts and go to digitalawakenings.co.uk or email me, sean at digitalawakenings.co.uk. This podcast comes out on the first and third Sunday of every month, so I'll see you in two weeks. Hold up. 